This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. On January 28, 1896, Walter Arnold became the first known driver to receive a ticket, first scorching the earth through paddock wood at a blistering eight miles per hour. However, it is widely believed that the first issued paper ticket to a driver for speeding occurred in Dayton, Ohio in 1904 to a driver named Harry Myers, a city that also hosted the first ever NFL game. Now, receiving tickets when you have the blue lights flashing in your rear view might not be cool. However, the tickets we get for the right to enter a sporting event can get our hearts pumping for the right reason, unless you're a Lions fan like me, maybe. And speaking of driving, this week's guest has essentially given us all the keys to our own DeLorean, in our hearts that is, through tickets and programs by creating a company called Row One Sports. Welcome to the Football History Dude Podcast, where each episode is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the NFL. Your host is Arnie Chapman. Football is his passion, and he wants you Come along with him to explore the yesteryear of the gridiron. So hop on board his DeLorean, and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour. This time as we step off the DeLorean, the date is November 18th, 1876, to witness a historic, air quotes here, football game between Harvard and Yale, including some, what we'll call it, important people out there, like Walter Camp, for instance. But we'll get into that in the interview. Because the reason that we're able to dial in the right coordinates to this game is thanks to this week's guest, Ray Durbin. Ray is the founder of your new favorite sports merchandising brand, which is Row One Brand. This game is the oldest program reproduction on the site, and there are over 4,700 more, with the collection growing all the time. Before we get into this interview, here's the About Us section from the website. Row One Brand honors the greatest sports artists of all time. Row One has the nation's best digitally restored historic sports art collection and a jaw-dropping amount of framed sports print collection that includes vintage sports tickets, stub reproduction, wall art, and program cover art reproductions done by the greatest sports artists from the 20th century. Since 2013, Row One brand has been providing sports fans unique vintage sports ticket stub reproduction wall art and historic canvas sport art. Row One Sports Ticket Art has been featured on Forbes.com as well as in numerous other print and online publications. And I'll tell you what, to learn more about this company, you can head to the page for this episode on Sports History Network. The easiest way to get there is SportsHistoryNetwork.com forward slash Row One. That's R-O-W-O-N-E. And while you're there, you'll notice a cool giveaway from Ray and the team of Row One Brand. He's going to give one lucky winner their favorite artwork from the site and have it printed on one of the products on the store. To enter the contest directly, you can head to, well, you might have guessed it, sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash contest. And speaking of contests and nostalgia of Southern football, well, let's go ahead and check this one out too. We're giving away free digital copies of Under the Stadium Lights on the contest page as well. Here's a little more about that movie. Now on digital. Milo Gibson and Lawrence Fishburne star in Under the Stadium Lights, an inspirational true story of a small-town high school football team who fought to beat the odds to turn their lives around and win their state championship. Score your copy of Under the Stadium Lights, buy or rent it today. Rated PG-13 from Paramount Pictures. With that, 
This is one of my longer episodes, so let's get right into the interview with the founder of Row One Brand, Mr. Ray Durbin. Like I was telling you before, I'm not really sure how I even found your site. I couldn't remember like the moment, but I do remember when I first went on there, I'm like looking through there and I'm like, wow, this is this is a unique idea. Very cool. So why don't you take me back to that? We'll call it Eureka moment when you first realize you're going to start Row One Brand. Uh, basically, I have always been a sports fan, whether it's football, baseball, basketball. And fortunately, over the years, I've had an opportunity to watch a, a lot of different teams in person. Uh, I went to University of Oklahoma for undergraduate school. Then I was in the service for a while, went down to University of Texas after I got out of the service for law school. So I was always able to um, kind of follow Oklahoma University of Texas. Of course, I grew up around the uh, Detroit area, a small town, uh, just north of Detroit. So I was always a big Detroit Lions fan and Detroit Tigers fan. Uh, and I also had an opportunity to, uh, I, I was always a big Los Angeles Rams fan too. But at any rate, uh, so I've always been interested in the sports. And one day around 2011, I was looking at an OU ticket that had, um, I'm, I'm not saying it was from 2011, but that's when it occurred. I was looking at an old University of Oklahoma football ticket that had some artwork from earlier in time uh, that they had reproduced on that recent ticket from like 1930s or so. I thought, that's a good idea. I wonder what it would look like if you looked for some old tickets and blew them up because the artwork was so good on that one ticket and see what it would look like. So uh, I did that with a couple of different tickets. I think one of the first ones was a um, 1956 uh, Notre Dame University of Oklahoma game that was in South Bend, Indiana. And basically, that had a diagram of the stadium on it and everything, and, uh, or outside view of the stadium, a drawing. And uh, it made a pretty good piece of uh, artwork when he blew it up and framed it. And so from there, it just progressed, acquiring various tickets, and then started out with uh, college football and then programs, and then expanded into uh, professional football, NFL baseball, hockey. So we have pretty much every uh, sport, soccer, uh, Indy 500 race, old tickets from Indy 500, horse racing, Kentucky Derby, all those. But that's how it got started. And it just kind of progressed and developed over a period of time. So it sounds like it was one of those initial, like you said, a big sports fan and you had that moment uh, we'll call it your Eureka moment. And then it kind of a drip process. So you did not pull an Archimedes, did you? Uh, when he discovered the yeah, Archimedes I, principle? I, I had taken a shower because after I took a shower, I ran out in the streets and people said, you no longer or you don't Rika. <laughs> okay. So anyway, and, and also we're talking about the, the fact that I had an opportunity to see a lot of uh, sports over a period of time. I've been lucky to be able to see in person uh, a lot of the Heisman Trophy winners. It just happened to be uh, quite a few of them tended OU, but, you know, Billy Sims, Barry Sanders, who was OSU, Steve Owens, who was a, a runner at uh, OU and 
he won the Heisman, and then Sam Bradford, uh, Kyle Murray, and uh, quarterback Baker May Mayfield. I've had a chance to see all those players in person, kind of see them develop, and uh, that also whetted my interest in pursuing this project. Interestingly enough, I mean, Billy Sims, uh, Steve Owens, and Barry Sanders, I think those are the three that subsequently wound up playing for the Lions for a period of time. And of course, Barry Sanders had the most successful career of all those successful pro career. And uh, that's about it. Yeah, when everybody listening to the show right now that's been listening to it for a while knows that when you say Barry Sanders, they're almost probably rolling their eyes because they know what's coming when I talk about how Barry Sanders is like the reason why I was such a fan of the NFL growing up as a kid. And I was going to be Barry Sanders till, well, you know, known as Barry Sanders. Right. <laughs> I, I was going to be Norm Van Brocklin until the, ah. the other kid pointed out that I, I didn't have an arm and I didn't have any speed and no eyesight. Oh, you don't need any of that stuff to play. What are you talking about, right? <laughs> Going back to the the Lions. So I know you mentioned growing up in you know the northern Detroit and everything. I go on your website, and this is more recently, right on the shop. It must have been a recent poster you put up there. The 1957 Detroit Lions championship poster. Uh, what about the oldest ticket that you have or post program or anything on the site? Uh, the oldest one that I'm aware of is a 1876 program from um, uh, a game between Yale and Harvard in 1876. Uh, and that is an interesting ticket for a lot of different reasons. Uh, one is the fact that Teddy Roosevelt went to that game who subsequently became president, but he was a freshman at Harvard and he attended that game. It was the second meeting between Harvard and Yale. Uh, first time they met was in 75, and then they had their second game in 1876. The other interesting thing is that an um, individual by the name of Walter Kemp played on Yale, and uh, he was uh, a freshman, and he later became known as a father of American football because he was instrumental in getting the rules changed over a period of years. Um, and an interesting story when when he went out. And back then, uh, American football was basically on, the, on the, that program. You'll notice the football is almost round. It looks like a soccer ball. And uh, the, the rules were very, well, I should say rugby. Rules were very, very similar to rugby. But the ball is very round and everything. And, and the low-scoring games, I, I think that particular game, uh, Yale won. I believe one to nothing and uh, their season, uh, the various games, Harvard played four games that year during the 76 calendar year, Yale played three. And then they had an expanded notion of what a season was. They played their fourth game in April of 1877. And I think Yale was undefeated that year. They probably declared themselves national champions. I don't know about that. But uh, the other funny story, Walter Camp, uh, only weighed about 150 pounds, and allegedly the uh, Harvard captain looked at everyone and said, he's not going to play, is he? He's like a baby. He's going to get hurt. Uh, and so uh, that, that was uh, the beginning of his uh, the football career for Walter King. 
and he was instrumental in developing the rules and everything I think I mentioned. He actually died in 1925 when he was attending uh, a rules convention meeting. And uh, he went to take a nap between sessions and passed away in his sleep. So he was a diehard fan right to the very end. And Teddy Roosevelt all, or, yeah, always was interested in football. You know, he's probably a big hunter. I mean, you know, he was a big outdoorsman. He liked to go hunting and, you know, have a rugged lifestyle. And uh, he was always uh, a big football fan. And he, in, in effect, helped save it because in 1905, there was a big controversy about abolishing football because like 18 people died that year, I believe, something playing football. So they developed rules, had a rules committee, and they abolished the flying wedge and some of these uh, things that were getting people seriously injured. So Roosevelt had called all the representatives from Harvard, Yale, Princeton uh, to the White House, and they developed that. He said, there's a problem here. we gotta got to try to fix it. And then the following uh, winter, they had a meeting of about 62 colleges or so that came up with some initial rules and changes. But that I think that's the oldest ticket we have or the oldest program is that 1876. That's the first time. And maybe I found it in my research because so Walter Camp was the first episode on the Football History Do podcast back when I used to do solo episodes where I did not interview mm-hmm. style. I may have picked up on that but that is interesting it's it's re- it's reminiscent of when Burt Bell passed away watching his two favorite teams play as a commissioner well, I hadn't heard that that well that was unfortunate I guess well, <laughs> but if you're, yeah. gonna, if you're gonna go that's the way to go right doing what you want well and if he's if he if he passed away in during a nap that's also one of those where it's not um you know he didn't have to suffer I mean, yeah but and I also you so you mentioned Walter Camp Teddy Roosevelt, and of course, there were some others there. I think even maybe Naismith was there, or was that a later? That might have been later. But it's just, I'm just curious that in those moments when people actually realize, wow, there's a lot of heavy hitters in this room. Like nowadays, it's a little watered down because everyone knows how many followers a person has or how much money they make. But back then, it's, I just, just wonder what it took to feel or realize this is like a huge moment that's going to shift things forward. Right. I I don't know if they know it at the time exactly, if, if I'm following your train of thought. I don't know if the participants actually know what a big change is going to occur, or what a big impact they're going to have on the game. Uh, but it's amazing the development of the sports. And then, you know, when professional sports came in, I, I can remember in the early 50s where professional football was just, you know, there's just very few cities involved at that point in time. Um, you know, Detroit, Chicago, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, New York. And a lot of the teams, a lot of the major cities would have two teams in either football or baseball, whatever, whatever it might be. Um, baseball was always the big sport professionally up through the 60s or so. And then I, I think NFL really made a lot of headway. That's interesting too. Also how the popularity of professional sports has changed over time. I remember when I was a kid watching basketball, I thought, mm, I'm not sure about this, but I, I had grown up watching baseball and then football and then basketball. So sort of like an add-on. 
but uh, over the years, I mean, basketball is so fast-paced and everything, it's really enjoyable to watch. And part of it was the style of the game has changed. Back in the 50s, everything, a, a lot more defense was played in basketball. So it's interesting over time how game, how the sports, each individual sport, has kind of developed and changed over a period of time. You know, an example being the introduction of the forward pass in these games. No longer had any game from one to zero and three to zero and that sort of thing. Yeah, another partner I remember show on the network is called Basketball History 101. And I've been, I don't know, for lack of better terms, binge listening to his episodes. And recently I listened to the one that described how goaltending used to not be illegal. So it was just they'd hire the the tallest guy. And then there was also after every made shot they would have a tip-off just imagine stopping the play every week for, yeah, for a tip-off that, that that would be time consuming of course some of the earlier basketball games are pretty low scoring too mm-hmm. and i can't remember did they implement the, the rule i can't remember whether it was this player at oklahoma state kirkland or whatever his name was i don't think it was Wilt chamberlain that they made that change uh, I'm not real sure, but I know what you're talking about, uh, where they put in the thing of goaltending. And and it may have been due to you know, one of these seven-foot players in the 40s. I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't recall the specifics of the episode because, I, you know, I've like I said, I've been listening to so many, but it stuck in my mind that plus then the fact that I can't recall the, the best, the famous player's name at the moment, but the blocked shot was frowned upon for a while where if you left your feet, you were considered a poor defensive player, but then this one guy would, golly, I can't remember the basketball player's Bill, name. Was it Bill Russell? It may have been Bill Russell. Um, I don't know for sure, but let, but along those lines, yeah. Well, we were talking about the Lions and that that program. I think where they were world champions in 57. And one of the real treats I had was watching the Lions in the 1950s, playing on TV or listening to them on the radio. And um, they had some really, really good teams uh, in, in the early 50s. And, of course, they won the championship in 57. And maybe you can help me out here. There's two other years in the early 50s that they won. Uh, I, I, I want to say. For some reason, I want to say 53 and 54, 54. but I, I don't for sure recall it Yeah. But uh, when growing up there, and I, the Lions used to practice over at a, a private school called uh, Cranbrook. And during the summer, some of the kids, including me, would go over there and watch the Lions practice. And it, it was a completely different uh, atmosphere, you know, people wandering around, getting, getting autographs. All, all they required you to do is when they were – actually scrimmaging or running plays or running drills. They had little ropes. And they didn't want you wandering over on the wrong side of the rope while they're actually doing something. But if they're just sitting around or standing around, taking a break, you're free to run out there and try to get an autograph or whatever you could from them. So that, that was a lot of fun. That was, that was a treat. And, of course, Bobby Lane, who was a quarterback, it's kind of interesting in that 57 championship game. I was always a big Bobby Lane fan, and he and the coach at the time, a, a guy by the name of Ray Parker earlier, or what was his name? Buddy, Buddy Parker, his nickname was Buddy. 
but he and Bobby Lane, and he wasn't, Buddy Parker wasn't coached in 57, but prior to that, he and Lane had kind of perfected a two-minute drill. And so a lot of the memories I have is the Lions being behind in the fourth quarter and two minutes left or a minute and a half left, and uh, Bobby Lane was able to move down down the field and score and win. And the other thing that's kind of interesting, that year that they won the championship, I think they were eight and four. But the year before, they had been blown out by the Browns in a championship game, and so or two years before. And so this was kind of revenge factor when they won in against Cleveland in 57 to claim the championship. Yeah, I had Gene Cronin, who was on that 57 championship team. Oh, was he on your on, program? Yeah, it was, it was quite some time ago, but he had some very cool stories about in the locker room, the head coach and everything. And you mentioned growing up in the fifties, what's the earliest time frame that you can recall watching or listening to games? The first thing are two things. The very first thing I can remember, I was a big Audi duty fan, but I remember one Saturday morning, I was pretty young, uh, really. I actually, I remember one Saturday morning on an old RCA little 12-inch screen or something portable with rabbit ears and all this kind of stuff. And you watch the test patterns for a while until you get a headache. But the first game I can remember seeing on TV was uh, a Princeton game. And they were playing. I don't know who they were playing, but it was an Ivy League game. Princeton was playing some team, and it was in the snow. And I, I was smitten. Princeton had these little stripes under our uniforms like to represent a tiger. And that's something I had to have. I had to have a sweater with stripes on it. Uh, that was one thing I remember. And then I remember going to a Detroit Tiger, uh, Philadelphia Athletics baseball game. Uh, year, I can't remember, probably about 52 or so. I uh, went to that and uh, enjoyed that. Of course, I was getting antsy after a while. I was so small. You know, like, how about another hot dog and a Coke or something? But those, that are, those been are the Tigers two stadium? earliest. Or, or, yeah. or Brick Stadium. Okay. Man. It was called Brick Stadium. Uh, and then I guess what? They renamed it Tiger Stadium. I guess they demo- they have demolished that. They I think they did when they put in Comerica Park. I don't recall, though. I don't know whether it's still existing or whether they turned it down. I'm not. I, I'm not sure where it was. I, I was too young to really know for sure. I didn't pay attention like the location because I wasn't driving when Comerica Park came into existence. So I didn't, as a kid, didn't really pay attention enough of that. But uh, that's cool. You have a lot of um, old memories that can kind of relate to some stuff that I may have heard my dad or grandpa talk about in this local area. I, I can remember playing football in my front yard with a cardboard helmet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at that point, what's the point? Picking <laughs> a ball with a had like an elastic strap on it and a cardboard helmet. <laughs> it's a having a cardboard helmet's almost yeah. worse because then you have the illusion yeah. of protection. Right. That's true. <laughs> Speaking that of is. illusion of protection, and I'm sure they didn't have much back then compared to what we do now. Uh how about one of the let's get into some of the tickets or programs that you have on your site. Yeah. You mentioned 1927 Ohio State versus Michigan football game. Why is that significant for you? Well, that is the earliest well, I, we may have an earlier ticket, but that was the year that University of Michigan, that game, Michigan, University of Michigan versus Ohio State, 1927, 
was the dedication game, official dedication of the um, new stadium for the University of Michigan, which big house or whatever. I, I want to say the attendance for that Ohio State Michigan game in 27 was like 85,000 or thereabouts. And I read some, which was a big crowd. I think I read someplace it was three times the population at that game, three times as many people there as the population of Ann Arbor back at that point in time. Wow. But um, that that's a, a good game because that that's a f- first official dedication of the stadium. I, I think they played a couple of games, at least one earlier game uh, that season, but it what, didn't have the big hoopla and everything that that game did. And then we have a whole series of University of Michigan tickets going back to the 30s, the 40s, the 50s. Uh, some of the early ones, they have a Wolverine on it. I, I know we have a ticket Wolverine, Wolverine. University of Michigan against Harvard, and it they have a large Wolverine imposed on top of the ticket. And some of the early tickets from the 20s, 30s, 40s are really well designed. And they're really pretty when you look at them, study them and everything. Really good art. Uh, so we have a lot of University of Michigan tickets. Uh, one, one game that I thought was very, very interesting is we have a ticket for the 1969 Ohio State-Michigan game that was played in Ann Arbor. Ohio State was going in with had a winning streak of like 22 games or something like that. They were ranked number one. Bo Schenbeckler, I believe it was his first year, I think. And uh, he had coached under Woody Hayes at Miami. He had played for Woody Hayes, I think. He was an assistant coach for Woody Hayes for a while. Um, but Schenbeckler went over to University of Michigan, and they upset Ohio State. Uh, and that was the beginning of what has been referred to as the the Ten Year War, which is a series starting with that game in '69 and ending when Woody Hayes retired in about uh, either '78 or '69, maybe whatever it was when he ran into that problem with the uh, was an Auburn player in a bowl game that Woody Hayes kind of you know bumped or whatever. And, and one comment, you know, a lot of these things happen and, and things happen to Joe Paterno and Woody Hayes. And I think I read recently some sort of controversy with Shim, uh, Shim Beckler. But in all of these things, it doesn't detract from what these guys have achieved. I mean, all of these people like Woody Hayes, uh, Bo Shim Beckler, uh, whomever it might be, Barry Switzer ran into a problem. It's still, I mean, we're all human, but but the point is all of these individuals accomplished a great deal and are excellent coaches. But anyway, I, I like that 69 ticket for that reason. It's a pretty ticket. And uh, another little factor of that year, I had an opportunity to go to the Michigan-Missouri game earlier in the year, about three or four weeks before that, whatever the exact sequence was. Uh, so I, I went to that game and uh, squeezed in like a sardine in Michigan Stadium. So 69 was uh, an, an interesting year from the standpoint of the development of the uh, rivalry between, and they were rivals before, but I mean, it's real intense 
10 year period where uh, Slim Beckler and, uh, and Woody Hayes were both coaching. And, and the series at that point in time, it was good. I mean, Michigan would be favored and Ohio State would win. Ohio State would be favored and Michigan would win. And it was like that for about a 10 year period, back and forth. So it was really interesting. Then we, we have a large number, like I said, of Michigan tickets. Uh, we also have, well, basically a large number of all teams. <laughs> right. Uh, Notre Dame, Ohio State, Texas, Oklahoma, whole, whole thing. But I, I always like that 69 ticket because it's it's a good ticket. It has a picture of like, I say a picture. It's not a photo. It's a drawing of Michigan Stadium and then they have tenants. Which is real cool. Like you said, the the drawings versus just taking photos of everything. And it's it's um, something that's been brought up on my show before about the Super Bowl programs, the posters, like the early ones compared to some of the more recent where they, they feel like the early ones were by far and way better. Speaking of programs, something that you brought up too in our pre-interview was that let's talk about the 1940s Notre Dame team programs tickets. I'll, I'll leave the floor to you for that. Speaking of Notre Dame tickets, one, one of the tickets that I really, really like, there's a whole series of, of Notre Dame tickets during the 1940s, which I think are very interesting art. And they also represent a period of time where Notre Dame was just dominant in college football. Starting out, the, the first ticket I'd like to talk about in terms of Notre Dame is uh, Arizona versus Notre Dame ticket from 1941 as a drawing of a, a runner on the ticket and uh, it was an opening game September 27, 1941 and played in Notre Dame Stadium uh, what I like about all these old tickets too, is looking at the prices, they make my, my little heart jump when I think about the prices on this but it's kind of it's kind of funny like this particular ticket it's two dollars for the game and they had a tax of 20 20 cents on it uh now what's interesting about this ticket it was the first game that a coach by the name of frank uh, Leahy had coached in and he had played under newt, newt rockney in 1930 31 or so he was a I don't know if he started. He didn't start out coaching. He started out as a head coach at Boston University a couple of years before he went to Notre Dame. Previous to that, he had been assistant coach at various places. And one thing that's kind of interesting, Leahy was the assistant coach. He was a line coach at Fordham University when uh, Vince Lombardi played there. And I don't know if you ever heard, Vince Lombardi is one of what they call the seven blocks of granite or something, which they used to refer to line people. Uh, with me, they would have called it, uh, you know, uh, sandstone. But anyway, they were the uh, being weak and soft. <laughs> okay, but, yeah, I was I was going to uh, follow up with a question for you to describe okay. that because I'm interested. <laughs> but but uh, anyway, it's kind of interesting that he had coached Vince Lombardi and uh, went to Boston uh, College. And did real well while he was there. I don't know how many games he won. I think maybe 20 and lost two. And that's why Notre Dame was real interested in him. Uh, and he won the national championship there undefeated in 1940. 
uh, before he went to Notre Dame. Uh, but Leahy is kind of a, when you talk about Notre Dame coaches, you talk about Newt Rockney, you talk about uh, Eric Parsegian, you talk about uh, Lou Holtz. And, uh, I may have omitted a few. But Leahy, when, when you look at this guy's record at Notre Dame, it's unbelievable. And he quit, resigned, after the 53 season, I believe, or 54 season due to health reasons. He was a young guy. It's really young when he got out of coaching. But what I'd like to do is this. So we have a whole series of tickets during that time period. But uh, his record from he, he coached at Notre Dame from 41, 1941 to 1943. And then he went into the service and into the Navy during the war. And when he came out, he started back up again at Notre Dame in 46 and coached through. 1953. What is very interesting about Leahy is he had a record of 107, 13, 107 victories, 13 losses, and nine ties. There was a lot of ties back then before overtime. So he had a winning percentage of 0.864, which is a really high winning percentage. Uh, to give you an idea, our era par seasons was 0.83. And I don't know how he stacks up winning percentages. I don't know how you figure that exactly. Maybe you can help me. I don't know how you figure winning percentages when you have ties thrown in there. To give you some idea, Newt Rockney had a record of 105 wins, 12 losses, and five ties. So Leahy actually had more wins than Newt Rockney. He won 107 games. Rockney lost 12. He lost 13. Now, the only difference is uh, Rockney had five ties, like he had none. So, I mean, he was an excellent coach. And I, I, I wish I had the years here where he won the, uh, okay. Leahy won the uh, national championship in 46, uh, 47, and 49. And it looks like maybe he won. I'd, I'd have to double check this. It looks like maybe he won in 43 too. And of course, they gave him credit for a national championship when he was at Boston College. He's just an excellent coach. I mean, a lot of people haven't heard of him, but uh, he's an interesting character. He had a real flashy bow tie. He used to wear on a suit coat on the sidelines. So you can tell that doing research, I started out, I didn't know anything about the guy that heard about him. But looking at some of these tickets, I thought, hmm, who's the coach of this team? And then one thing leads to another. But I'm pretty impressed with that guy, as you can tell. Uh, as far as winning percentage, he he had six undefeated seasons at Notre Dame. And according to my notes, he had five national championships. That's pretty doggone good. To walk away when he was in his 50s, he had to resign due to health reasons. I always thought that was interesting, I, and I like those tickets during that time period. They have good artwork on them, and they also have some historical significance for what a great coach he was. Yeah, and you even mentioned in the middle there, he had a two- or three-year span where he's in the military, too. Right, right. Now, if someone corrects me on these national champions, but I, I may have given you too many. I, all the notes have four national champions 
shipped as coats. So I don't know if all four of those are Notre Dame or they include the other. The other interesting thing, he played on two national championship teams under Newt Rackley. Hmm. So for, he had a very eventful uh, football career. <coughs> so uh, I, that, that's a series of tickets I really, really like during that time period. And of course, we have tickets going beyond that. Notre Dame, I mean, we have Notre Dame tickets all the way up to the 80s, as with all these teams. Again, yeah, I mean, it sounds like you have tickets galore and everything. And uh, one of the things we might want to get into is we play a little game on here that I've kind of started recently on the show called Rapid Round. Uh, but how about with you? I know you have a ticket to each one of these games of the century, we call it. Are you okay with going a little Rapid Round style with that? Okay. Quick. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have some notes here and I got some of my own thoughts. And okay. Before we get into this, sure. can you kind of explain to me what the games of the century is and what the criteria is? You know, there's numerous games of the century in quotes. So uh, the, the pundits and the commentators and sports writers and fans of the look at certain criteria to determine what a game of the century is. It's not necessarily the best game because certainly there can be some really, really exciting games. Uh, like who was the old announcer of the Lions? Was it Dan Patrick? I remember growing up, there was this Lions announcer who uh, maybe announced the Tiger games too. But it seems like every, what was it, Dan Patrick? Oh, geez, there's that name, but then there's there maybe the, the one I'm thinking of is probably not from if you were growing up. Oh, uh, geez, what the heck's the guy's name now? But yeah, he he, so recently, he passed away recently. So you think there's an age difference? I'm not I'm not saying anything. I mean, me? you know. Okay. <laughs> I, but I remember this announcer used to always say, "We have a when when the Lions were playing the 49ers, I was listening to it on the radio. It was always we have a cliffhanger at Kizar." Which keys our state? That reminds uh, me anyway. of the in my days watching Barry Sanders. I can't remember the gentleman's name, the announcer, but it was always you'll never see a play like that again. That was incredible, and every play was like that with Barry. All right, let me see it a few minutes later. Well, Sanders was really a good back. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, but anyway, there's various criteria to determine what a game of the century is, and some of them pan out, some don't. Not so well, but we have uh, a lot of tickets for games that have been categorized as game of the century. And some of the criteria that uh, the sports writers are going to look at is whether they are how the teams are ranked, but preferably it's number one versus number two at the time. Uh, and, and I think what I read during the 20th century, number one played a number two team 31 times. But it's all not going to be a game of the century because sometimes those games are early in the season and the team's tank after that, you know. And also early in the season, it's like the beginning of the 20th century. How do you determine a game of the century like in 1905? The century hadn't even occurred yet. But they, they look at the ranking of the teams, the, the type of players, if they're named players playing on the team, the history of the teams, how good they are. Certainly taxidermy tech being undefeated, playing some, you know, University of Ragmuffins. Even though they're both undefeated, they're not going to have the same uh, glamour, the glitz and all that. So it's a team's history, 
how they're ranked, where they have top players at the time, and all these tickets that I'm going to talk about um, that that would be they would meet the criteria. Okay, so now how about the first game, the 1945 Army versus Navy game? Well, what was significant about that? Played in 1945, right after the war. The war ended in August of that year, uh, you know, victory over Japan. A lot of optimism. People were rabid, you know, to get back. It's like not having to wear a mask anymore, only maybe 100 times better. And so the game was played on December 1st, and Harry Truman attended the game. He was the president at that time. Team Army was ranked number one. They had a record of 8-0. Navy had a record of 7-0 and one tie. Uh, actually, it turned out to not be that close a game. Army jumped out to a, a lead early, I think maybe 14 nothing. They wound up beating Navy 32-12. But what's significant about that game, it was the game of the century at that time prior to the game. Everyone thought of it as being the game of the century. The problem was Army had about the best team, one of the best teams ever in in college football history. They had two Heisman Trophy winners. At the same time, you probably heard of Doc Blanchard, Glenn Davis. Blanchard, I believe, won the trophy in 45, the Heisman Trophy, the year of this game. And Glenn Davis, who was a halfback, Mr. Outside, came in second. Uh, the other thing about Army, they had a lot of, I, I don't understand fully the rules at that time, but they had very liberal transfer rules. And so the best players from a lot of different colleges came to Army for that one year, and they were like in a backup role. So, I mean, they had good players. <laughs> I don't know that anyone could, uh, could beat them, but they were, like Glenn Davis averaged over 45 and 46, 11. Over 11 yards of carry. This guy who's a halfback. I've seen some films of him. He was fast. The, the coach, Red Blake, said he had like five gears he could shift into. So there wasn't a significant moment. That, that The key moment in that game was the fact that Army was so good. They, they were just outstanding. I, I don't know that anyone could have beaten him that year and probably for several years after. Now, I'm going to shift over real briefly. Talking about the games of the century. It just so happens there's a game of the century the next year, which was between Army and Notre Dame. And that gets back to the coach we're talking about, Leahy. He had come back from uh, service. He was a coach of Notre Dame now. Previous year, Army had beaten Notre Dame like 44 to 0 or something like that. Well, in this game, this was really built up. Uh, this is truly a game of the century. Uh, I was played at Yankee Stadium. Teams went back and forth. Knight um, had Blanchard was still playing. He was a Heisman winner. Davis, Glenn Davis won the Heisman that year. And Notre Dame quarterback was the guy by the name of Johnny Rujak. He won the Heisman in 47. So there's a lot of talent on the field. And they went back and forth. And all these guys were making great plays. Davis intercepted the ball, I think, or Rujak threw uh, Lou Jack tackled Davis when he was getting ready to have a breakaway run and score. And the game wound up a 0-0 tie. Now, you could say that was a hard for our contest and very interesting. Notre Dame wound up, even though uh, it was a tie, 
they awarded a national championship to Notre Dame. AP did that year. That was one of the national championships that Lightyear won. So, okay, so how about the next one, the 1966 Michigan State versus Notre Dame game? That game was the, the 1966 Michigan State Notre Dame game. Interesting for a lot of different reasons. I was able to watch that on TV. It was a big game. And it's the way television and everything has changed over a period of time. At that point in time, it was only regionally telecast. And the reason for that, the rules at that point in time, the contract with whoever the network was, NBC or whoever had it, they could only televise a team one time nationally. And Notre Dame had already been televised at the first of the first game of the year against Purdue. The game was regionally telecast only. But here was billed as the game of the century. Well, fans went berserk, and a lot of them wrote in. So finally, the network relented, and they had tape delay broadcast on the West Coast and in the South. But other than that, those people around the Midwest were able to see that game. Again, Michigan State had a real good defensive lineman. He played in the pros, Bubba Smith. The uh, coach was Eric Parsegian on Notre Dame. And what was interesting about this game, uh, the Starting one of the starting backs, I don't know if it was a fullback for Notre Dame, he was getting off the train in East Lansing and he slipped and hurt his shoulder and he couldn't play. And then the starting quarterback for Notre Dame was knocked out of the game in the first quarter by Bubba Smith. So Notre Dame was kind of playing short handed. Michigan State jumped out to a 10 0 lead. Notre Dame came back to tie it. And there wasn't a lot of time left. Uh, Notre Dame had their ball. They got the ball on the 43-yard line with just uh, a few minutes left. And Eric Parsegian is widely criticized for this. He elected to play for a tie. It was tied up at that time 10 to 10. And he elected to play it safe and didn't try to score, didn't try to do anything that would lose the ball or, you know, attempt to build them. Now, he was roundly criticized. But if you if you say, I mean, there's different perspectives. Some people say you win. Like at one time, I think Tom Osborne was playing a bowl game against Miami, Nebraska. And they went for a win at the end, and they weren't able to complete a two-point conversion. They could have kicked an extra point to win. And uh, I mean, to tie, he went for the win, and they lost. The national championship goes down the drain. Well, in this particular case, our season played it safe. The next, and the wind up with a 10 10 tie. Next week, he went out to Southern Cal and he beat Southern Cal like 52 to 0. Worst defeat Southern Cal had ever had. So, Notre Dame wound up being number one at the end of the year. What's really interesting about this, I think, and I read this book, it's something like Three Rings or something, but it's about the Alabama football team and the Bear Bryant. During this time period, which would have been 64, 65, 66, they were incensed because they were undefeated. And I think in a lot of the polls, Alabama wound up number three. They were left out in the cold. Uh, but they were undefeated. And they felt, well, Notre Dame played for a tie. We didn't. We're undefeated. Why aren't we national champs? But in hindsight, you can't criticize. I mean, I guess you can if you say you should always try to win. 
doesn't matter. And there was a lot of criticism. You know, people would say, tie one for the Gipper. You know, that was story, one, one for the Gipper. They would say, tie one for the Gipper. And the other thing people would say was, was he, what was it? Uh, oh, yeah. Rather than the Fighting Irish, they had this act, uh, moniker of the Tying Irish. So, but, you know, it depends on your perspective. Or proceeds, and you can say, well, you wound up winning a national championship. And you have to, you know, you have to look at it from a standpoint, too. Maybe they were the best team because starting back got hurt getting off the train and the quarterback got knocked out in the first, you know. And he may have been unsure about, hey, we don't have a starting quarterback. He may throw an interception or whatever. So all that stuff on hindsight. But at the time, I remember there was a lot of tour about the, uh, the whole scenario there. So that, that I think, was an interesting outcome of that game in uh, 66. So how about the next year? We'll go to the next game of the century, 1967, UCLA versus USC. Okay. Well, have you noticed a pattern here? There's a game of century about every year. No. Seems like it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that game was very interesting because, again, that, I think, was one of those games that really lived up to its hype. It was played on November 18th, 1967. UCLA, they were number one in polls, and in, in one of the polls, and number four in AP. Uh, and USC was number one in one poll and number two in the other. But uh, UCLA was 7 0 and 1, and Southern Cal was 8 and 1. The, the game had a lot of fanfare. OJ Simpson was a back. You probably heard of him, right? Who, and uh, they had a quarterback who won the Heisman on UCLA by the name of Gary Beaton. But the game was back and forth, back and forth, and it was uh, tied 14-14. In the fourth quarter, Gary Beaton, UCLA, threw a pass, touchdown pass, and UCLA went up 20-14 to because they had missed an extra point at some, I guess, at that time. Yeah, yeah the extra point was blocked, so it was 20-14. There wasn't much time left in the game, and uh, Southern Cal quarterback noticed that the linebackers for UCLA were dropping back for a pass play. And so he checked off, and he gave the ball to O.J., and O.J. Simpson ran for 68 yards, 64 yards. Southern Cal wound up winning 21-20. to 20. Now, UCLA went on and became number one at the end of the year after the bowl game. But Simpson, Simpson Beban, who was a quarterback, won the Heisman that year on UCLA. OJ, who was a uh, running back for uh, um, Southern Cal, won the Heisman the next year. Now, Keith Jackson, who was a commentator, TV broadcaster, or anything for ABC, he later claimed that was uh, the best game he had ever seen in, in person. Yeah, O.J. Simpson would be another one of those guys that, like you said, he had some unfortunate events, but that still doesn't take away from how good a player he was. Away, you know, it doesn't take away from the athlete and everything that he was. Heck, I made a few mistakes in my life. Well, maybe two. Yeah, <laughs> yeah mine's, mine's on one hand, too. But uh, speaking of that, so I did not grow up in an era where I could watch him live. How? What was the hype when he came into the league and how, I guess, how much better was he than the next running back at that time? 
I, I think he was had to be one of the most outstanding backs ever because he had speed and he had size. He, he could run over people. He could run around people. And uh, I, I believe, I don't know if he started out with Buffalo Bills, but he wound up playing for the Buffalo Bills. I, I don't know if OJ started out with the Bills or not. He had a very, very, very successful pro career, too. And, and he was good back. Now, even this guy I was talking about quarterback, Heisman winner, he did not have a successful pro career. He, he was drafted. He, he went to a couple of teams off and on, and he wound up, uh, I think some team tried to make him into a, a wide receiver. Problem was, okay, I think they're supposed to go to lot L.A. Rams, and they had Roman Gabriel at the time who was a quarterback, and he was pretty established. They went to another team, and they had a quarterback pretty set, and so they tried to make him into a wide receiver, and he only lasted a couple of years. So just winning a Heisman Trophy certainly doesn't guarantee any kind of success in the pros, although uh, O.J. had a very, very, very successful pro career. Just fast, size, speed. You know. I, I think it's probably a really good back. It's different, different back from uh, the guy we are talking about, uh, Sanders. It was more like all over the place. He could spin and turn and shift, you know, all the time when he was running. He was the kind of guy that, you know, back when they had the tube TVs, you had to hit it on the side because you're like, I'm not sure if this TV's working right because he's over there. And then the next yeah. minute he's over here. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Speaking of disappointing. When, when he he just retired out of the blue, didn't he? I mean, with no yeah. Stop, stop taking that dagger and putting it in me and twisting. If you you know, we can leave that one alone. We can pretend that never happened. But yeah, that <laughs> he it would. I was a a youngster, and they had training camp at our local town um, during that time frame near, near me, similar to you watching the the Lions in the day. And I remember when he retired again i've told this story many times in here i like it it rocked my world like because i had only known barry sanders my entire life you know as a as a lions fan until he wasn't there and again it rocked my world but uh speaking of rocking world these games of the century like you said it seems like it's almost every year 1969 arkansas versus texas what happened there and that that was a good game that was a game of the century that was the same year 69 i think i told you before i i went to the missouri michigan game uh, early in the year, got drafted, had to drafted early, had a report for the Army, and I think end of October. So for a few few weeks there during basic training, I didn't get a chance to see a lot of football. But this particular one, and, and before I went into the service, uh, a friend of mine and I drove down to Texas to watch the Texas OU game, which was fun. Then we both went our respective ways. He was in the Navy and went over to Vietnam and I, I, I went into the army, but getting back, it's very eventful. 1969, uh, Texas, Arkansas. I did get a chance to see that game on TV. Uh, it was billed as a game of the century. It was really significant. Texas was ranked number one. Arkansas was ranked number two. They both were nine and oh. Texas coach legendary Daryl Royal. Arkansas, Frank Royals, his famous coach. They both had good teams. And, and again, we we're talking about the history. What makes a game of the century? History, like Michigan, Ohio State, you could easily see them playing a game of the century. Or UCLA, USC. Rivalries, history, 
good teams generally. In this case, Texas and Arkansas had won the old Southwestern Conference Championship like eight out of the last 10 years. They had chaired it. Uh, Arkansas was national champions, I want to say, in 1964. Texas was a national champion in 1963, I believe. So they had all this going for them during that decade of the 60s. So it was a big game. And uh, uh, national television, uh, what's his name, Billy Graham, came to give the invocation. President Nixon flew in on Air Force One and landed someplace, and it took a helicopter to the game. Uh, and it, it lived up to its billing. Arkansas jumped out. Texas fumbled the ball like six times. They were running wishbone. That's kind of a, a, a good offense when it's clicking, but this was rainy. It was foggy. It was all this stuff. I'm not making excuses for them, but they fumbled a lot. It's high-risk offense. And Arkansas got ahead 14-0. So Texas kind of clawed their way back into the game. They scored. It was 14-0. Texas scored the first play of the fourth quarter. Darrell Royal had already decided he was going to go for two points the first time Texas scored because he didn't want the game ending as a tie. He was probably thinking of Notre Dame, Michigan State that happened three years earlier. So he went for two. They converted it. And ultimately, it stayed at uh, 14-8. Until late in the fourth quarter, Texas got their ball. And I, I think they wound up there on the 43-yard line, 40-yard line, something like that. And it was fourth and three yards to go for the whole shooting match. And they're, they're down 14 to eight. So the question is, I guess for most people out there, what would you have done in that case? You're under 43. You got fourth down, three yards to go. What are you going to do? You're going to go for the first down, try to run, try a short pass. Royal opted to go for a long bomb, <laughs> a long running pass play. And uh, uh, Street, from what I heard, the uh, Texas quarterback, Street said, you know, looked at me, you sure you want to do this? And he yelled out, yeah, I want to do this. So he went out. They threw the ball. It was like a 43-yard gain or something. They hit the ball down in Arkansas's 13-yard line. They were able to punch it in. Score 15-14. There's some time left. Arkansas went down the field. There's about a minute left. They're on Texas' 40-yard line, and they tried to pass play. If they had made that pass, they would have uh, gotten the ball in around the 20 or so. Could have kicked a field goal. Now, unfortunately, it was intercepted. But that was a game back and forth, high-powered teams, excellent coaches, good players, and that that truly, I, I think, deserved a game of the century. All these did, in my opinion, except maybe uh, the one we talked about, Navy Army. But that was hindsight. That was after the fact. Oh, one thing, really funny story about the 69 Texas-Arkansas game. Penn State was undefeated. It was sort of like the situation Alabama had been in, Michigan State and Notre Dame. Alabama was undefeated. Why aren't we national champions? Penn State was undefeated. Now, Nixon had decided ahead of time that whoever won, he was going to declare them national champions. And he had a little plaque made up. And I remember seeing this. 
He had a little plaque made up. He was going to present to the coach and everything, which he did. So Nixon kind of declared Texas to be the national champion that year. And, of course, you can imagine how sports writers felt, how all the people who voted on who's the national champion, uh, how the fans all over the country, you know, thought this is appropriate for the president to declare the national championship. So and the other little interesting thing about this, Texas went on to beat Notre Dame in the uh, Cotton Bowl 21-17 that year. So that's good. That's okay. But Penn State also beat Missouri in the Orange Bowl, and they were undefeated at the end of the year. Uh, again, according to Nixon, Texas was already in the national championship. The other interesting little tidbit here is Penn State had had an opportunity. They had received an invitation to play the winner of the Texas-Arkansas game in the Cotton Bowl, but they declined because those two teams were all white at that point in time. Penn State objected on the fact that neither Arkansas or Texas had any black players on the on the squad. And so they objected to that on, you know, those grounds. A little funny story in 1973, Joe Paterno, this always bugged him. He was not named as national chairman. He was given his speech in 1973. And he said, you know, I just don't understand it. Nixon knew so much about college football in 1969, but he doesn't know anything about Watergate in 1973. And that was you know, a fiasco with a break-in, Watergate and everything. So I, I think the Texas-Arkansas game fits into that category of being game of the game of the century, one of them. Yeah, sounds like you said many games of the century. Um, so we have one more last game of the century for your tickets. Uh, 1971 Oklahoma versus Nebraska went down. What, what happened there? Well, in a nutshell, <laughs> uh, I had an opportunity to see that game in person. And what I derived from the whole experience, I was I was down at Austin, Texas at the time. Uh, my brother was able to get a ticket. We came up for Thanksgiving and everything. My wife and I went to that game. Game of the century. And what I learned was it can get very, very, very cold in Oklahoma at the end of November. And I, I had come up wearing a sport coat. I, I just had a real light sport coat. And I, keep in mind, it's 71. It was cool to wear a turtleneck and a sport coat. And I was freezing my uh, butt off the whole game. But it, again, it was an excellent game. Nebraska was ranked number one. Of course, number two. Nebraska had the uh, top defense in, in the country at that time. Oklahoma had the top offense. They were averaging like 483 yards a game rushing. They had a wishbone. They had perfected the wishbone at that point in time. I, I know these some of these games are before your time, so you want to who are these people? But uh, some of them. <laughs> okay. Well, Greg Pruitt, who uh, had a good career, pro career in Cleveland, was uh, on the OU team at that time as a halfback. Jack Milton was a quarterback. Uh, they, they had a good team. Now, unfortunately, Nebraska was better. <laughs> but it was a game back and forth, back and forth. Uh, Oklahoma was ahead. Of course, I was reading for OU. But they were ahead with about seven minutes left. And Nebraska got a, took, uh, a kickoff and consumed the whole time, 
except for about a minute and a half left. They took all that time to have a 73-yard drive, and they went in for the winning touchdown. I think the, the score wound up to be 35-31. Uh, again, that lived up to the billing of, of the game in the century. Again, you know, it's it's like debates over who was a national championship before they had the playoff system. And so there's a lot of games of the century, but not too many. I mean, there's only about three others that people generally consider to be games of the century. And, uh, some we don't have the tickets. There's about three, I think, that are still outstanding out there. We're going to try to recover. So, again, the ones that we just discussed, you actually have these tickets on the website first. And oh. oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And one of them I, I dearly love. But we can talk about that unless you want to talk about like now. You so which one do you dearly love? Which which one strikes a, a, the heartstring for you? That that ticket that I would really, really. I don't. I'm not going to give up any body part for, for it. But a ticket I would really love to have is the 1946 Notre Dame Army ticket that wound up in a zero zero tie. Because I, I, from what I've heard and what I've seen on our old films, that that was just everyone can see that that was a great game, and it lived up to its billing. And it's sort of like the Notre Dame Michigan State game, although oh, I can't say that the the difference in the Notre Dame Army uh, 1946 game. One of the teams didn't lose two of their key players before the game. I was going to say. Michigan State, Notre Dame, and 66 ended up in a zero or a 10 10 tie, and Army, Notre Dame, a 0 0. But both those teams in 46, they were at their full complement. They had all their players, they didn't have anyone injured that, you know, key has been So that's the game I'd really like to see. Plus, if you're talking about the atmosphere, the glamour, 1946, uh, war being over, Still, I mean, it's been over for about a year, but a lot of optimism in Yankee Stadium. That, that's a game I would like to see and would like to have a ticket. Speaking of tickets, so so you have, you obtain or acquire these tickets physically, and then that's what you use for your artwork? Exactly. Tickets, programs, um, scorecards, uh, magazines, uh, advertisements, media guides, all the historic artwork we can get our hands on. For example, I learned of a guy over in Wichita Falls that had some programs, uh, Texas A&M, Texas, various things like that. So I traveled over there to review them and said, well, yeah, we can use this, we have this, we use that. So we acquired, you know, maybe eight or nine items at that time. So through, you know, garage sales, through estate sales, through internet, you know, purchases, things of that nature require those. You're almost like, you're like the Indiana Jones of uh, sports ticketing then. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and I've been mistaken for that Indiana Jones guy. Before. Oh, striking resemblance for sure. No <laughs> doubt. Put a hat on and that. What's that called yeah. with the little bullwhip? <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, his father. In that one place, Sean Connery played his father in one. 
So that, that's guy that probably most resemble at when he's much older. <laughs> okay. So I asked this question to Joe Horrigan. Uh, he was a longtime curator, I guess, Mr. Everything for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. If you, and, and I, I don't, this is not like a, an omen or anything for you, but say you at your place of wherever you store all these items and you were leaving the building. And again, I don't want it to burn on fire, but you could pick one item and you running out the door. Which one would you pick? That would be, I, that, that would be difficult for me to determine that. I'd grab a handful. <laughs> so you're going to cheat just like my previous test. I'm, I'm going to grab, grab a handful. One of the texts we haven't talked about that I really, the, the name of our company, I don't know if we've talked about this, is 47 Straight LLC. It's a limited liability company. It's called 47 Straight. Row One brand is our, our brand that we sell all the products under and market and all that kind of stuff. 47 Straight, we got that name from the fact that Oklahoma had a 47-game winning streak. I thought, that'd be interesting. We have the tickets. For the start of this streak against Texas back in 1953, and we have the ticket for the last game of the 47. We have a Missouri Oklahoma ticket. Up Oklahoma went up to Missouri, uh, played Missouri Tigers up in Columbia, and we have that ticket. Okay, so we have bookended the first victory and the 47th victory. That's a 47th streak. Unfortunately, I shouldn't say unfortunately, fortunately, because I haven't seen any. We also have the 48th game where Notre Dame beat Oklahoma to end their winning streak. And that was in Norman, November of 1957. Uh, I was watching a game on TV and my little heart was pumping. <laughs> and I believe this is true. Did, did you ever hear about a guy by the name of Nick Petrosani? I think he played on the Lions. I believe he was a fullback for the Lions. I, I need to check on it. Nick Petrosani uh, threw the winning block. Uh, the game was back and forth, a 0 0. One of these deals where Notre Dame gets the ball and just, oh, you can't stop him. They're grinding it out, grinding it out. And got down to the goal line with not much time left. And I think Oklahoma was expecting a run up the middle. So they kind of stacked their defense in that. And Notre Dame went outside. Nick Petrosani was a fullback that had the lead block that allowed the runner to score. And I'm almost positive Nick Petrosani played for the uh, uh, Detroit Lions after that. So, so those are interesting tickets. And, and the, the, the end of the 47-game winning streak, which is longest in college football, Notre Dame, and the, the other interesting thing, Notre Dame points out the fact that they were the last team to beat Oklahoma before that streak began. Now, now what happened in 53, Notre Dame beat Oklahoma in the first game. It was like 28-21, I don't know, score. It's a pretty close game. And then the next week, Oklahoma tied Pittsburgh 7-7. And then they went on their 47-game run streak. Uh, I had mentioned before, you know, starting this thing, I was looking at 56. I like the 56 Oklahoma-Notre Dame ticket. 
because Oklahoma won 40 to zero. That was an interesting game because Paul Horning was quarterback for Notre Dame and he won the Heisman Trophy. Even though Notre Dame had a terrible season, like two and eight, but Paul Horning was a good player. And, you know, what are you going to do if you're a real good player and not, not to get a team? But they, uh, he did win that. And of course, he went on to play at Green Bay uh, Packers under Lombardi. So, yeah, I didn't realize the golden boy was a quarterback in college. Yeah, he, well, he's quarterback, kicker. Because uh, what, he play halfback at um, mm-hmm. or Packers? Yeah, I mean, he was good. Now, he got intercepted like four times that game, but <laughs> whatever. But, again, there was, a lot of, there was a lot of talent on the field. Horny won the Heisman. Johnny Majors, who was back on Tennessee, finished back. He came in second. But Oklahoma had a number of players that kind of divided a vote, uh, vote up. Tommy McDonald, you may have heard of him. He was a real good receiver. He went to play for Philadelphia Eagles and real good receiver for them. But he was a halfback. They had Quinton Thomas. He went to play for L.A. Jerry Tubbs was a linebacker, real good. He went to Dallas and was an assistant coach under Landry. So there's a lot of talent on, on the field. I, I think that was uh, – I did want to talk a little bit about the 47 straight, where we got the name for that. Now, obviously it doesn't have the – in our opinion, it doesn't have the punch that row one does for marketing and stuff like that. So we developed that brand and uh, significance. Your row one, you're up front at all the sporting events. Yeah. And um, I'm glad you said it just like that, because that's a good transition because real one brand being up front, having these old tickets to be able to reminisce being back there at the stadium, if, or if you watched on TV, Um, We're going to skip over the NFL stuff because we've talked a lot about college and we're going to dive right into this guy, the DeLorean, similar to Real One Brand, which gives you the chance to go back in time and reminisce and relive. But I'm going to give you this question. It's a little bit unique because of the nature of your company. What's the one ticket, program, or artwork in all of human sporting history that you wish you could use my DeLorean to go back and steal an original copy of? Well, what I would prefer, <laughs> but I don't think it's going to happen. I've always been, I would like to see the Lions versus the Christians in the Coliseum back in the early times, but I don't know if they have any tickets or anything for that. So absent that, uh, I think what, again, if if I had any choice of any current ticket, can you explain it again? In, no, anything. Anything I could go back to. Any sporting event. You go back to any sporting event in human history. And even the Gladiators, I'm pretty sure they had some form of, I, you they know. probably had some form. Yeah, I probably, probably wouldn't really be in, uh, <laughs> want to go there. What I would like to see, to have been able to see, and I don't remember the details, but probably... I, I know the event. I don't know who was playing whom, but Stan Musial. When I was a kid, I, I remember going home, reading a newspaper, and he, I believe, hit five home runs in one day at a doubleheader. And I, I was pretty impressed with that. Now, unfortunately, I don't recall the team 
they were playing, but it was the St. Louis Cardinals. Would have been a game in, I'm thinking it would have been a game in about 1954 or 55, probably 55. But that would be what I would enjoy seeing because I was always a big Stan Musial fan. Yeah, that'd be perfect. Like you said, something you grew up listening or watching and you really enjoyed it. Um, here's something. I grew up, I'm my name is Arnold, actually, not just Arnie. So Arnold Schwarzenegger is one of my fans, even though he wasn't really that good of an actor. <laughs> A movie he was in, The Last Action Hero. Did you ever see that movie? I did. Okay, so you really? know the premise where the, the, the golden ticket and the, the boy went into the movie? Okay, so we're going to have that same situation with you. Similar to a DeLorean question, you can pick one ticket that you have possession of and you can do that ticket thing and you can be live for that moment which one are you going to i think i would probably uh like two am i allowed to pick two one but let's start out. you I own the like tickets to, you can do whatever you want i would like to see the game where stanford played cal and they had the Trying to think here. Stanford went ahead with about eight seconds left or something like that. Kicked a field goal. And it was 1982, Stanford, Cal. And in fact, they call it the play. Stanford was ahead and they had four seconds left. Kicked off to Cal. And there was a lot of, a lot of shenanigans. I don't remember all of it. Stanford got a penalty for celebrating because they went ahead. So they had to kickoff 15 yards shorter, kicked it to California, and California wound up lateraling five times. Uh, they wound up scoring and winning. But probably a lot of people have seen that playback. If they didn't see it in person or on TV at the time. They played that back a lot where the Stanford band came on the field and various fans and that, and so the Cal players kind of, running over these fans and people and band people to score. And after it was over, I think the officials huddled and one of them said, the head referee said, did anyone blow a whistle? No. Did anyone see any, any you know, penalties or anything? No, I didn't say, <laughs> okay, touchdown. <laughs> and so uh, Cal won that game uh, with like zero time left on the clock. But I mean, it was that to kick off with about four seconds left. And there's similar games that have happened before. It was in Auburn, Alabama, where uh, something happened last minute, uh, tried a field goal or something. I'm trying to remember. Uh, and they wound up winning the last play of the game type of thing. But that Stanford Cal is just so bizarre. I'd like to see that in person. And we I do have that ticket for that, so we'd definitely like to see that. You don't want to be that band guy that got ran over, though, right? You want to? Be I with, don't want to be okay. that. I'll be the guy who scored the winning touchdown. There you go, quantum leap style. We talked oh, about you that know on what, the show too. You know what's interesting about the game? John Elway was the quarterback for Stanford. Oh, and it was an interesting game because Stanford was like five and five. And there's some bowl representatives there. And if Stanford had won the game, they would have gone to a bowl game. And the other thing is Cal Stanford is a tremendous rivalry. And they, they refer to it among themselves, you know, alumni and fans of their schools. They call it the game, the big game. The big game is Cal Stanford. 
So that was a bizarre twist. Now, I had my fingers crossed or whatever I need to do. The other game I'd like to see is the, uh, I would like to have seen the 1957 Cleveland Detroit Lions game where the Lions won. They really significantly beat the Browns in that game. And uh, Bobby Lane was hurt, and Tobin Rope, who had been acquired from Green Bay Packers at the beginning of the season, was quarterback. He, Tobin Rope was a really good, good player, good quarterback. So I'd like to see those games. If you, if you force me and twist my arm and I can only choose one, I would probably take the 59 Lions game World Champions because that's the last time they'd won. Yeah, uh, you're talking yeah, to somebody. Hope Springs who's... Eternal. <laughs> What's that? Oh, Hope Springs Eternal. Yeah, every year we drink the blue Kool-Aid and we get a new coach and everything. And then from there we get to let our hearts, at least our hearts normally get broken early in the year. We don't have to wait to the playoffs and then lose it in the divisional or right. your championship round. Uh, but enough kidding aside, and we've had a lot of fun today with that. Any last words of advice for the listener of the show, including maybe the mission of row one brand? Okay. Well, what, what row one brand wants to achieve? is to provide uh, excellent sports art that has a historical flavor to it. And we want to make that readily available, a wide variety of artwork. If you want to call it vintage or retro or whatever tag you want to put on it, we want to provide that in high quality products. And we haven't gotten involved in a lot of that, but as far as the artwork, we have canvas, we have framed art, we have uh, wooden signs, we have uh, metal signs, we have acrylic artwork, uh, all types of artwork, prints. And then in addition, we're trying to use these historic vintage images to create other products like apparel, phone cases, um, beach towels, just a wide variety of products that lend themselves to using some of these historic vintage retro graphics on them. And most of the items, it's amazing. And most of the things we acquire and we look into, we, we do it both ways. We go after certain things, but it's amazing how many of these things we acquire that then when we research, it's like, good grief, like an example. I purchased that 1982 uh, California Stanford ticket. We we're just talking about where they, you know, won at the end of the game. Um, I bought that because the graphics, the drawing on that is just excellent. It's a, what attracted my attention. It was a centennial year for California football, and so it, it was significant. I looked at that, and then after I, I looked at it, I Cal Stanford. Hmm. And looked it up, and it just so happens that that was the game that we were just talking about a little while ago. Now, some of the items I, I know, like 1957 Notre Dame, Oklahoma, I'm not going to pass on that. You know, might be willing to uh, you know, put a flak vest on or something. Uh, but what we want to do, we want to preserve sports history, much, much like you guys do on all your podcasts. And by the way, I want to thank you for the opportunity to appear on your show. And 
also I've listened. You have like a affiliated, I, I think. I don't know the exact structure, but you have about 20 other podcasts, I believe. And I've had an opportunity to listen to a number of those, a different podcasts and your podcasts and everything. Programming is excellent. I really, really enjoy it. And what we're trying to do is some of the things you guys are doing in terms of trying to preserve sports history uh, and honor the past. There you go. Honor the past. I think Ray said it best. That's what we're trying to do here at the Sports History Network. We aim to create the headquarters of sports yesteryear, just as Ray aims to create the headquarters of nostalgic sports artwork. Again, to learn more about his company, you can head to the page for this episode on Sports History Network. The easiest way to get there is sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash row one. That's R-O-W-O-N-E. And don't forget to sign up for the awesome giveaway from Ray and his team. You can do so by heading to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash contest. But for now, dude, I'm through if you're through. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Football History Dude. To make sure you're the first to get the next episode, please subscribe on your podcast player of choice and head on over to thefootballhistorydude.com for the show notes and more information on the history of the NFL. And remember, dudes, where we're going, we don't need roads.